I'm Catherine McElwain. I'm the Tolkien archivist at the Bodleian Library at, at the University of Oxford. Okay, so could you tell me what actually uh, entails being the Tolkien archivist? Um, well, I'm responsible for the curation of the Tolkien archive, um, which we hold at the Bodleian, which is um, the largest Tolkien archive in the world. We have about 500 boxes of Tolkien's manuscripts um, and over 300 volumes from his academic working library. Um, so part of my job is to catalogue that material. Um, in archival terms, this means to look through every box of manuscripts, describe what's there, put it into an intellectual order that's going to make sense um, to the user. Um, then to help the end user in the reading rooms, um, academic researchers can come to the Bodleian to consult the archive. Um, I also deal with uh, researchers from further afield who can't make it into the library. Um, answering their queries. Um, because the archive is still quite a modern collection, it's still in copyright, so my job entails quite a lot of liaison with the Tolkien estate who um, administrate the archive. Um, and so requests for any publications or for images to go into publications uh, involves quite a lot of liaison between me and the estate and um, the user. Um, so it's quite a varied job. Um, I also do outreach connected to the collection. Obviously Tolkien is of great interest beyond the academic community um, and there's great public interest in his work as well. Um, so we've done displays, major exhibitions, books. Um, I do sometimes school groups and sometimes um, virtual sessions with uh, students from overseas. Um, well, during the pandemic I have, sometimes they can come into the library um, and we'll do uh, actual sessions <laughs> rather than virtual sessions. Um, so yeah, it's nice to have some outreach as well beyond um, the academic researchers. Um, and yeah, that gives us, it's quite a, a rounded job in terms of uh, an archivist. And, and Alice, uh, as, as an archivist, sorry, while we've touched on it, um, the events of 2020 and 21 with the pandemic, mm. has that really impacted on your ability to do your job because you've, you've had to almost be physically separated from the archive? Um, it's been interesting actually, um, we've all learnt to use technologies um, that were, had been around but that we hadn't really grappled with before. Um, so. Zoom meetings and, and, and team sessions um, and some of it has been really fantastic because it meant that I could reach out to groups overseas, much bigger groups than could travel to Oxford. Um, so you feel like you're, you're reaching out not to just people who can afford to get on a plane from America and come to Oxford for two weeks but anyone who can just show up in um, their university um, room. Um, I also did uh, a book club recently for children aged 8 to 14 um, and that was a session that we conducted across the UK um, and everybody could kind of dial in via, via Zoom and they could see me chatting and they could ask me questions and that was really lovely to get that sort of interactive and I don't think I would ever have done something like that before the pandemic but we've all got so used to different ways of working that there's really some positive things about it um, and it hasn't greatly affected my work um, although some of my work is hands-on I need to consult the archive and I need to do some of my cataloguing work um, a lot of what I do is sat at my desk 
um, and just sat at the computer, it's answering inquiries, it's dealing with copyright issues, it's liaising with the estate. Um, so during the pandemic really, when I've been able to access the library, I've stored up um, uh, tasks that I need to do where I actually need to consult the archive. Um, and I've probably done a bit more work for researchers who are unable to get to the Bodleian than I would usually. Usually I would just facilitate the research and tell them what they can find and which box it would be in. Um, because researchers haven't been able to travel to the UK, um, I've done more of going down to look at that material, getting it out of the stacks and sending them the information or sending them scans with the approval of the Tolkien estate. Um, so a little bit different, but it hasn't greatly affected my day-to-day -day work. Okay, thank you. Um, just, if it's okay, just in the, in the now, the here and the now, because it is such a, an extraordinary time, um, have you noticed an increase in interest in Tolkien? Because one of the things people are saying is, you know, people have returned to books a lot more, They've and they've also returned to books which, well, in Tolkien's word, allows you to escape the prison cell and imagine a better world mm. around that. Has it has? Have you seen a, a bigger increase in interest? Um, not in terms of the inquiries coming to me, which a lot of the inquiries are uh, from academics. Um, the exhibition that we held at the Bodleian in 2018 and then follow-on exhibitions in New York and Paris hugely increased interest mm. in our collection and raised its profile. Um, but in terms of the pandemic, it was interesting because the school children who I um, did the book club event with, um, one of the questions um, from a girl in that group was, um, did I think that Tolkien's uh, work, we were particularly looking at The Hobbit rather than The Lord of the Rings, which was more appropriate for their age group. Um, did I think that, that it had a particular message for us during the pandemic? Um, so yeah, that was interesting that people, um, even children were, were reading it with a different slant now, looking at it um, from a period of, of danger and fear for everyone that we've all lived through. And I think even though um, children weren't getting sick and dying as adults were, they were still affected by the fear. Um, and how uh, did you reply, or, or did she also have a view? Yeah, I, I think it was really interesting. I hadn't really thought of it myself, but of course, The Hobbit, um, the main character, um, Bilbo Baggins, he's not really a heroic character, is he? But he grows during this journey. He goes through um, fearful episodes and he has to overcome that. And, and it all comes right in the end. He finds inner strengths that he never knew he had. Um, and he finds his own moral compass. Um, and he comes back safe, which I just think is important for the age group reading that book. Um, so yeah, I thought it was... Yeah, it, it, it did have a message during this, this period that, um, yeah, that we can all um, look into our own personal resources, you know, our, look within ourselves and we can find that we have more strengths um, than we realised um, and that, you know, through very difficult times we could come out on the other side um, into better times. <laughs> yeah, well, let's hope so. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so returning to the collection itself and the archive, um, could you say a bit about the history of how it actually came to Bodley and also the relationship between the collection at Bodley and the collection at Marquette? Mm. Yes, so um, the collection that we have at the Bodleian came after Tolkien died. So Tolkien died in 1973. Um, at that point, 
um, some, he'd already sold part of his archive to Marquette. So maybe, um, shall I deal with the Marquette first? So in sort of chronological order, that, that came first. Um, so Tolkien published The Lord of the Rings, as we know, three volumes, 1954 and 1955. And um, he, was, he was quite near retirement, actually, when the book was published. It had taken him an awful long time to write, and then it had taken him another five years to get published. Um, so he was quite an elderly professor. He was in his 60s by that time. And um, Marquette University in the state of uh, Wisconsin in America, in Milwaukee, in fact, um, they have appointed a new director of the library service called William Reedy. And they were building a new um, memorial library um, at that time, and they wanted to fill it with collections and so Reedy was employed, I think he'd come from Stanford University where he was an acquisitions librarian and he was employed by Marquette University um, to acquire new collections. Um, this is in 1956 so he sought a number of different collections, he didn't seem to have a theme to me, there was lots that he um, um, sought and didn't get, he did get the papers of um, the US politician McCarthy, um, and he got the papers of a Catholic activist, um, Dorothy Day. And for some reason, known only, I, I suspect, to William Reedy, he went after the papers of J.R.R. Tolkien. And the dates are quite important here because it's only a year after uh, the publication of The Return of the King, the final volume. And so Reedy's very um, quick off the blocks, if you like, and he gets in touch with Tolkien via a London book dealer called Bertram Rota and offers to purchase his manuscripts. I think even in America, this is quite a, quite a new era over there where they're starting to um, purchase archives of living um, individuals, not just authors, but writers and academics. Um, and Tolkien's age, again, as I mentioned, is important because when he's approached by Bertrand Rota at the end of 1956, um, he's coming towards retirement. He doesn't have a lot of money. There's been um, quite a lot of discussion in the Tolkien community about this, but he absolutely didn't have a lot of money at that time. And um, he'd only received one royalty payment from the Lord of the Rings. So in 1954, he didn't receive anything. 1955, he didn't receive any payments because he was on a profit-sharing deal with the publisher. It was a huge undertaking to publish his book, um, over a thousand pages long, in three volumes. It was an adult fantasy novel in an era when um, this wasn't really even a genre. Fantasy wasn't a genre, and they didn't know who it was going to sell to, who was going to buy this massive fairy story for adults. Um, but they knew The Hobbit had sold well, that was their, their first publication with Tolkien, and um, Raina Unwin, the publisher, really liked The Lord of the Rings and they thought they'll go for it. They thought they were going to lose money on it, definitely, and the head of the firm, Stanley Unwin, said, you can lose a thousand pounds on it. If you think it's a work of genius, you can lose a thousand pounds. So they're prepared to publish it, even at a loss. And so to cut down the risk somewhat, they said to Tolkien, you won't get any royalties. That would be a sort of 
7 to 11% would be an average royalty for an author. It's, you won't get any royalties, but um, we'll put you on a profit sharing, 50-50 deal, once production costs have been paid off. If it makes any money after that point, then you get half of that. Well, <laughs> knowing what we know now, and, and the sales of Lord of the Rings, phenomenal, um, they would never have offered him that deal if they thought it was going to sell anything like it does. Um, so this was to reduce their risk, and this is why Tolkien didn't receive any money until May 1956, when he received a royalty cheque, quite a hefty one, um, and he was surprised by that, the publishers were surprised that it was selling. And so shortly after that, at the, towards the end of that year actually, he was um, approached by Marquette University through Bertram Rota and offered £1,500 for his manuscripts of the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Um, this sounds derisory now, it really wasn't. Um, it was equivalent to his annual salary as a professor at Oxford at the time. He was um, the professor of at Merton Professor of English Language and Literature. It's about 80,000 now or something like that. Right, yeah. 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 So, um, and Tolkien didn't jump at this, he took advice. He asked his publishers for their advice. I, I don't think they had any um, idea of what manuscripts were worth and they hadn't been involved in this before, but they, they thought it, if he checked out the tax situation, was he going to be taxed on that lump sum um, as capital gains or was it going to be taxed as income so he obviously took advice from his financial advisor as well and he decided to go for it um, as I say at that time they were, he had one payment from the books but Alan and Unwin had written to him um, and said we think this is really the peak in sales we don't think you're going to get anything like this again and so he were, they weren't expecting to make any more money from it. And um, he thought, why not you know, take this lump sum now? He'd actually just agreed to do two additional years as professor at Oxford. He should have retired um, in 57, and he'd agreed to go on until 1959. And so after he agreed the deal with um, Bertram Rota, to sell not only The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, but also to throw in um, Farmer Giles of Ham and Mr. Bliss, which was an unpublished children's picture book. Um, he got another royalty payment, uh, well, not a royalty payment, he got another um, profit-sharing payment from the publisher in 57. And they said, we, we think this is definitely it. Now you are not getting any more. Um, but in fact, he, he continued to get a large payment um, every year that followed throughout his life. Um, so everybody was wrong about that. But this is why he sold the manuscripts, because um, they came to him and they offered him money at a time when he certainly needed money, um, when he was worried about um, uh, having a, a retirement without any income on okay. a very small pension. I heard Bill Fliss say that they were deliberately targeting Catholic writers, that that was the theme. Right, okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't know whether it was put to him, that to Tolkien, that it was a Catholic university. It's founded by Jesuits, it's a private Catholic university. Um, and that might have had an impact on him as well. This is 
Catholic faith was hugely important to him. Yeah. So to be clear, Bodley never asked for the manuscripts or offered him anything? No, I mean at that time I don't think anybody in the UK um, would have thought of trying to buy Tolkien's papers. Um, the, the only book he'd had before that, the sort of fiction book, was The Hobbit in 1937, which had continued to sell well. Um, and then there's this huge gap until 1954-55 when The Lord of the Rings came out. Um, and although it, you know, it, was, it was successful from the start, it was, all, it was kind of a slow burner in the UK and really took off mm-hmm. 10 years or so later with um, the US market um, and increasing sales and increasing um, publicity for Tolkien and Tolkien's name. Um, so even at the time of his death in 73, I don't think there would have been anybody crowding around asking were there any other papers. So coming back to Oxford and the Bodleian, um, it was several years after Tolkien died and the Bodleian was looking to increase its literary holdings of uh, with authors with an Oxford connection. So it was specifically wanting to boost um, that area of our collections. And the head of, uh, the keeper of Western Manuscripts, as it was called then, um, was David Vasey who went on to become Bodley's librarian. And um, it, I don't know if it was um, David Vasey's um, suggestion, but certainly he approached Christopher Tolkien um, and asked if um, he would ever consider um, giving his father's papers to the Bodleian. Um, and there's quite a lovely phrase in uh, the letter, the original letter from David Basie to Christopher Tolkien. I'll have to paraphrase it now, but it's something along the lines of, you know, as a as a fellow of Exeter College and a, and a, and a reader and um, an academic, he, he needs no persuading of, of the genius of J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, and we really hope, you know, that this collection could come to the body. So Christopher um, was very happy to get that letter, very pleased by that idea and consulted with his um, siblings, who obviously have a stake in it as well, and everybody was agreed that they would like the collection to come to the Bodleian. Um, and obviously it's a natural home for it because it's Oxford University is where Tolkien came as a student, um, where he spent most of his academic career, apart from his um, five-year stint at um, the University of Leeds. Um, is where he wrote his books um, and so you know there's a huge connection in Tolkien's life to the university and to the Bodleian Library. Um, and I think the th- that the family also felt that um, not only would the collection be safeguarded at the Bodleian but it would also, there'd also be an academic focus on the research um, uh, that we wouldn't in a way sort of overuse the collection or use it in an inappropriate way. Um, so at that time um, Christopher Tolkien was working on the Silmarillion and still had a need um, to use the manuscript material. So it was a little while before it, it uh, was finalised and came to the Bodleian. Um, so we got our first tranche of material in 1979. And then there's been quite a, a number of 
donations and deposits of further material over the years <coughs> and yeah right uh, almost up to the present day really um, we take in material from the family um, and very occasionally um, we look to purchase material um, of course Tolkien um, manuscripts uh, or any items associated with Tolkien have enormously high monetary value now which makes it quite difficult um, to purchase items and we wouldn't for example I think we wouldn't go for an individual letter a, a letter from Tolkien depending on the subject matter would go from between five and ten thousand pounds for an individual letter um, so bearing in mind the whole of our collection we wouldn't go for something like that but you recently, it was the Pauline Baines map, was it, with we the did. annotations by yeah. Tolkien? Yeah. So we, we don't have a huge acquisitions fund as a lot of American universities do. Um, so in order to purchase the, it was a printed map of Middle Earth that was taken from the back of uh, The Return of the King, or what was taken out of the Lord of the Rings cutout from Pauline Baines's copy. And then her and Tolkien annotated it, and this was to help her visualise um, her illustration for the poster map of Middle Earth. Right, yeah. And so it's yeah, it's fascinating to see what what Tolkien's written on it about the flora and fauna, what the ships would look like, and the sails, and uh, and different place names that he's written on that map. So yeah. it just shows there was so much more in his mind that he, that he hadn't put down into the published work at that stage. Um, so that was a really lovely item. As soon as I saw that, I, I took with me as well Judith Priestman, who's curator of literary manuscripts at the time at the Bodleian. Um, we went to look at it and we thought, oh gosh, <laughs> we would love to have this item. This is a very special um, item to have in the collection. But that entailed um, grant applications and asking um, friends of the Bodleian to support it in, in a financial way. And so there's quite a lot of effort involved and quite a lot, a lot of time went into that. Um, so it was about six months before we acquired mm. the map. <coughs> so if we were to describe the archive now under the major headings that we have, you mentioned the Silmarillion manuscripts, mm. um, academic papers, is that right? And what, what would be the main categories that it falls under it bodily? Yeah, I have uh, into academic papers um, and academic books. Uh, literary papers, um, personal papers, and artwork. And the artwork is such a large section that's just kept into in a separate section. Um, so the academic papers are mostly available to researchers, and these range from Tolkien's own notes that he took as a student at Oxford um, when he changed to the English course partway through his degree. I don't know what he did with his um, classics notebooks. I think he slung them <laughs> because we only have it from um, when he started the English degree in 1913. Um, so they go, yeah, from his, his own um, student notes to um, the academic lecture notes and the research that he did for his own lectures um, from, well, from Leeds onwards, from 1920 onwards. Um, and quite a large section of his working library, his, um, his books of uh, old Middle English editions and dictionaries and philological works, and they're interesting for his annotations in those works. 
So that's his academic work and that, that's available to researchers. Um, the literary papers obviously of great interest and a small amount of those are available for researchers to consult. That is um, the non-Middle Earth material, I would say. So that's um, Leith by Niggle um, and Smith of Wooden Major. You can look at the draft manuscripts of that and um, see where Tolkien was going with that before uh, it came to publication. Um, and there's, there's uh, important essays, uh, lectures that he gave like on fairy stories and Sir Gawain and uh, Beowulf and the Critics, Monsters and the Critics, which are classed really as academic papers but are, are a crossover section mm. as well and, and that material is all available to researchers and uh, I would say our most requested item is the, um, the lecture on fairy stories, mm. um, which gives Tolkien's views on fairy stories were at a time when he was at the beginning of writing The Lord of the Rings and trying to assess in his own mind what fairy stories were and whether they were appropriate material for adults to read. So that's really interesting. Um, so the Middle Earth material, which um, is really from the earliest writings in the Silmarillion, um, when Tolkien was a student at Oxford, right through to his um, later writings on um, reincarnation of elves and um, some linguistic work in, that he wrote towards the end of his life. All that material um, is at the Bodleian but isn't available um, yet to researchers. Is some of that going to be in Carl Hostetter's new book? The yes. Nature of Middle Earth. It yeah. is, yes. I was just looking yesterday to see if that was um, published yet and I think it's... it's due out soon. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw a publication date of September, I don't I thought it was June, but yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that. Yeah, so Carl's had some uh, had permission to publish some of that material uh, in the nature of Middle Earth, which is quite exciting. Um, so that's his literary papers, and all the personal papers that we hold are um, still closed to researchers, um, just because of the, the personal nature of them and because... Um, you know, close members of Tolkien's family are still alive. So, um, so at some point in the future, um, hopefully that material will be um, de-restricted. The artwork um, is not available in a way because it's, uh, it's so fragile um, that we don't produce it in the reading room. Um, and I often get asked, well, you know, people sat there looking at medieval manuscripts, you know, and illuminated manuscripts. Why can't I look at Tolkien's drawing? Um, and the reason is that, you know, medieval manuscripts are on really durable material, this parchment and thick paper. And Tolkien throughout his life just used anything that came to hand. He didn't even go to the art shop and buy, you know, good quality paper and then start on the you know, the Hobbit dust jacket, which was going to be published, he, he just didn't. He just picked up some old um, <laughs> student exam script or, um, you know, the, the drawing of Xanadu, um, which is on the back of his tailor's receipt. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he, he continually reuses, recycles material, and the, mater the material that it itself um, is, is not going to last. Uh, unless it's preserved in, in optimum conditions and the more that it's handled um, and exposed to light and handled by people the worse it becomes 
Um, and also some of the artwork is friable, so if you've got like soft chalks and yeah. soft pencil on the surface, um, every time that's moved around or handled, that can actually um, be taken off the surface. Um, so we're very careful with the artwork and only surrogates are, are made available. Um, unfortunately, that's less of a problem now because a lot of the artwork has been published in yeah. high quality reproduction um, but that was one of the things that was so nice about the exhibition here and, and elsewhere is that we were able to showcase so much of that material which is usually just kept hidden in the dark underground <laughs> in the strong room um, so it was really lovely to be able to share that material but with the, with the artwork there's, um, I remember you helped me when I was doing my analysis of Shelob's Lair uh, chapter and I'd got some facsimile manuscripts from Marquette, which is the text, but then because he'd drawn the illustration of Kirithungal, that's in Bodley, so there's a bit of, is there, it, does that, was that common that there was a split every time he did a doodle or something like that, mm. it would end up here? I think that's, that's a, a, an unusual piece right. um, in our collection, um, and for us it's highly prized because it has these two pages of manuscript writing from the Lord of the Rings and uh, the rest of it is at Marquette University. Um, so that is unusual. I, I think probably what it comes down to is in the correspondence with Bertram Rota when um, he's negotiating the sale, Tolkien, um, like most authors or academics, wants to sort out the papers before um, they go to Marquette. But he's always hugely busy and he's always delayed and you can see this throughout his correspondence. And he's always apologising for being late with things, weeks, months, years late in <laughs> some cases. Um, so this doesn't get done and um, they take, uh, I think, The Hobbit and Farmer Giles and Mr Bliss in 1957 and he's still hanging on to The Lord of the Rings, he still wants to sort it out. And they come back to him and he eventually just has to let it go without ever sorting through it. And um, that material went a year later in 1958 still not having been sorted. Um, so I think, yes, he did remove that sheet, She Loves Lair. He must have removed it because of the artwork on it um, and then never realised when the manuscripts were sold. Um, I know that many years later, Christopher Tolkien um, discovered a number of boxes of material that were revisions and drafts of Lord of the Rings and he felt that they should have been included in the sale to Marquette and so he donated them at that point to Marquette, um, keeping their collection of Lord of the Rings complete, um, which was nice. And yeah, and, uh, I'm sorry to say, we just have that one <laughs> sheet. <laughs> <laughs> it was great for us, perhaps not so great for Marquette. 